The vast majority were probably children of landholders and themselves are potential landholders. Uh, in other respects, it may be shown that immigrants to Australia were encouragingly typical of their home populations. Um, we may compare the religious profession and the literacy of Irish arrivals with those in an appropriately standardised home population. These tests show that Irish-assisted uh, emigrants to Victoria in the gold rush period and to New South Wales throughout the heavy influx of the 19th century were only slightly more likely to be Protestant or literate than one might expect from their county origin. So they're reasonably representative. Dr David Fitzpatrick, an Australian historian now at Trinity College Dublin, setting the scene at the Kilkenny Conference. When I went to Australia in 1954, the journey took five weeks and nobody in Ireland ever expected to see me again. An event such as this, with participants from Australia in significant numbers, would then have been quite impossible, for several reasons. Firstly, of course, the matter of time and distance. And secondly, and in this context perhaps equally important, lack of knowledge and interest. Though in the 1950s and for some time after, the Irish element accounted for more than a quarter of the Australian population, the general level of interchange was low, and there were few in Ireland, apart from those with religious or close family contacts, who bothered much about a country at the other end of the earth, where people spent Christmas on the beach and spoke a form of English that struck strangely on the ear. Australian English, in fact, contains many elements of Irish English, a fact that has only recently been given recognition in the wider context of the development of Irish-Australian studies since the jet aeroplane and the mass media brought the two countries significantly closer together. In Australia, for so long regarded even by Australians themselves as an Anglo-Saxon society, the important role of the Irish in the shaping of the nation is at last being recognised. And the Australian Irish are rediscovering their roots and becoming increasingly interested in their ancestors who sailed, willingly or unwillingly, on the early emigrant ships. What part of Ireland did these pioneer Australians come from? The great emigration of the third of a million Irish people who came to Australia during the 19th century were convicts. But so far I don't have uh, strong evidence of a, a chain migration linking uh, the convict uh, origins uh, with the, uh, those of later emigrants. Uh, the pattern of emigrant origins was also affected by administrative as well as social or economic factors. The uh, caprice of immigration agents, the efficiency with which local sub-agents advertised Australia as a destination, and the religious or racial preferences uh, of Australian politicians presumably had some effect. But the supply of willing immigrants was strikingly resistant to these influences. Protestant politicians could not, for all their energetic campaigning, satisfy Australian demand for servants and labourers without admitting Irish Roman Catholics, and only about a fifth of assisted emigrants were Protestant. Nor did the distribution of emigration agents determine the local supply of emigrants. It's not just a, 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 an accident of where they happen to be a person available to sell tickets. Um, one major bounty contractor operating from Cork uh, between 1841 and 44, retained more sub-agents in Cork than in Tipperary, and as many in Kerry as in Clare. Yet Tipperary produced twice as many Bounty emigrants as Cork, and Clare 12 times the number from Kerry. The intention of the average emigrant was to get on in life, to achieve what is now called upward mobility. In terms of initial attainments, they were poorly equipped by comparison with the English or Scots. 
and the social status of the typical newly arrived Irish settler was accordingly low. But the relative deprivation of Irish settlers steadily diminished as the declining proportion of unskilled workers among Catholic bridegrooms in many districts uh, bears witness. This social advance, which probably applied both to emigrants and to their children, indicates the weakness of native and British resistance to Irish upward mobility. In countries like the United States or Britain, strongly entrenched establishments were successful in largely excluding first-generation Irish emigrants from the best and most desirable jobs and residential areas. But in Australia, the Irish arrived before any native establishment had been erected, and the, and the Protestant aversion to the Papist swarm was ineffectual. The most spectacular feats of Irish upward mobility were, it must be admitted, generally accomplished by Protestants uh, from Ireland, including the many otherwise unemployable surplus graduates of Trinity College Dublin, uh, who came to dominate the Melbourne bar and public life. Ulster Presbyterians were particularly adept at making rapid transitions from worsted breeches, if not rags, to riches, an example being uh, Joseph McGore, who sold his tenant right in County Antrim for a tidy £1,250 in 1861, uh, but owned a quarter of a million acres in New South Wales by 1878, equivalent to half the area of his native county. McGore's ma main station was called Burra Bogey, which is alleged to be the Aboriginal for quick swim. Uh, many sank in the course of their Australian swim towards riches, but enough completed the journey to sustain Australia's reputation in Ireland as uh, an El Dorado. At this time, there was an imbalance of the sexes. It's an uncommon attribute of Irish emigration to most countries that men and women left, usually unmarried, in almost equal numbers. Emigrants from other lands in the 19th century were at once more often married, or more likely to be married, and uh, disproportionately male. Throughout Australia in about 1871, the sex balance was almost perfect, uh, both for the Irish and for the locally born. Yet among other emigrants, there were nearly five men for every three women. More significantly, the Irish sex ratio was quite close to unity in most districts, as well as in every colony except South Australia, which had a chronic excess of Irish women. Excess of women, a problem never encountered by non-Irish emigrants, also characterised the major cities. This excess reflected a market response on the part of single Irish girls to the demand for domestic servants in uh, these rapidly expanding urban areas. In general, however, it seems that most Irishmen in most districts had an excellent numerical chance of finding an Irish girl to marry, though we can't establish to what extent the even-sex balance reflected their prior success in doing so. It's one of the traps of this kind of statistical analysis. All things being equal and racial ties being persistent, Irish men had a better chance of early marriage in Australia than did other settlers and a greater incentive to adopt the unadventurous habits of life and patterns of settlement appropriate to raising a family. From the female point of view, marriage provided the only likely path towards higher social status. Because of the dearth of other immigrant females, Irish girls had a good chance of securing surplus Englishmen or Scots, as well as their fellow countrymen. For reasons of demography, uh, which I won't go into as much as self-interest, Far more Catholic Irish girls than men found themselves involved in mixed marriages, even though there was the same number of um, Irish girls and men. You can work out that conundrum for yourselves. Um, 
This did not in itself entail upward mobility, since it seems that the Protestant men who succumbed to the charms of Catholic girls tended to be unskilled and of low status themselves. Nevertheless, the enduring effect of miscegenation uh, was to blur ethnic distinctions in 19th century Australia and to impede the development of an Irish subculture and sub-economy. Today, there are few Australians of older vintages who could claim to be purely Irish. The number of women immigrants was always lower than the number of men, and Dr Portia Robinson of Macquarie University, New South Wales, has been researching the women's role. She said of her contribution... It's uh, the transportation of the Irish women convicts to the Australian colony of Botany Bay and how these Irish women, the Colleens of Ireland, uh, known to contemporaries as the irreclaimable refuse of society, the dregs and sweepings of the prisons, how these Colleens became the first Matildas, the first women of Australian history. Uh, The main point is that they have been totally neglected up to now except in this role of the immoral, debauched, drunken, vile, dissolute criminals of Ireland who were sent out as a punishment, and they've continued to be seen that way. And what I am doing, I suppose, has been an advocate for them, a lawyer in a sense, of arguing their right to be the first Matildas, the first women to establish family life in Australia, to be the first pioneering women. Uh, And to do this was very difficult, because all the evidence that you could find from contemporaries was simply uh, a pack of she-devils, a vile, degraded bunch, everything about them, that they were immoral, vile, dissolute. Uh, So what I did was find all the women as individuals for the first 40 years who came to the colony of New South Wales and trace their lives in the colony, and on the basis of this evidence and the nature of society, saw their actual role, not what people thought, And then the problem was to explain how it was that they had one reputation to contemporaries, but I gave an entirely different picture. And this is fairly simply done when you look at the available evidence, which was only the opinions of people like governors, chaplains, missionaries, looking down on lower-class, illiterate, single convict women, so that all the connotations of that were that they must have been not only criminal but morally vile. And therefore they came to the colony with this reputation. Were they singling out the Irish in particular? Yes. yes. The Irish were the most infamous of all, to quote Governor King. And this link was, of course, most of them, almost all, were Catholics, which at that time linked them with treason, rebellion and all the rest of it. They spoke in the Gaelic, which of course meant they must be plotting because no one knew what they were talking about. They had strange practices like um, going to church, not a church service, but private church meetings, having wakes at funerals and doing all sorts of outlandish things. But their main, uh, it was mainly fear behind it. The Irish men and women came and there was this worry about rebellion. Uh, The wife of a lieutenant colonel in 1802 wrote back and said, this may be the last letter I write home, the Irish arrive tomorrow we will be murdered in our beds. So there's this expectation that not only are they treacherous, the men, but the women will aid and abet. And because the women were convict women, they were, of course, the lowest of the low. They were expected to be immoral. Now, the problem is that those feminist historians who have written about the women, Irish and English, have not looked to see whether or not assumptions were correct, but they've excused their behaviour. They've said that they were the victims of victims. Uh, Lovely expressions like the victims of the male frustration aggression complex. They were forced into prostitution. They had no choice. Uh, One writer actually said the social and economic conditions fostered whores, not wives. There was nothing else. And the name 
given to them by that neurotic second lieutenant, Ralph Clark. He said, you probably remember, mm. he said, when he saw the Lady Juliana coming in with its cargo of women convicts, of whom he knew nothing, he said, oh my God, not more of those damned whores. Now that name was picked up 200 years later by a writer, the title of the book, Damned Whores, or God's Police. And this reputation has stayed with them. And it has been perpetuated by the people who should have been defending them because they have excused it. They've said with one woman to five men, there was no choice. Uh, you had people like the Anglican chaplain Marsden declaring that uh, New South Wales was even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. The colony was nothing but an extensive brothel because the women didn't marry. Now, when you looked at that, he drew up a, a register in 1806 of all the women by name, and two-thirds of those were Irish women, and he decided whether they were wives or concubines. And he found that very few were married, less than a, an eighth of them. But when you looked at it, you found that the unmarried were Irish women who had no priest to marry them, so they lived together. And I know many of these women who lived with the same person for 10, 15 years, but they were labelled concubines. And so this all adds to their reputation. You know, they were morally vile, despised. But when you look into their colonial lives, you find, first of all, they didn't commit crimes in the colony. That is, if they did, they were not detected. And they were sober, honest, industrious. And not only did they become family women, that's women working within the household, whether married or not, but they also became the first working women of Australia in the sense that they started um, boarding houses, they applied for spirit licences, which, you remember, you're dealing with a lot of illiterate peasant women, and they, in their own way, are taking more opportunities than the enterprising men among the convicts. And Dr Robinson quoted a couple of letters from transported women to governors. I cannot be better employed than looking after my family, my children and my husband's business. And she was asking for a complete pardon. And you get other ones saying, I arrived here ten years ago, I now have an honest character uh, and I would like a pardon. And one of the nicest ones is, um, I can't think of the lady's name, Ryan, Mary Ryan. She said, I arrived here in Governor Bly's time and when I arrived as a convict, the governor gave me permission to earn my livelihood in my own way. I did this in a very honest fashion with Sergeant so-and-so. We now have three children and I would like a pardon so we can marry. But why hold a conference in Ireland about the Irish in Australia, almost five years ahead of the country's bicentenary? Colm Kiernan, Professor of Australian History in UCD, explained. The aim was to celebrate the Australian bicentenary, but it's, we're five years premature. The idea being to have a look at the Irish contribution in good time so that we will have a book available so that a distinction will be made between the Irish presence in Australia and British settlement as a whole. So yes, I have had a big part to play with this conference, but I don't want to take away from the very powerful committee without the support of all members. It couldn't have happened in this way. Now, the committee is drawn both from Ireland and Australia, is that right? Exactly, and it is drawn from Dublin and Kilkenny, and it has all kinds of people in it, from press publicity people to organisers and everything. I'm largely responsible for the academic side, which is what interests me, and the publication that will result from it. Yes, and there has, there has been government support as well, I believe. We've had a considerable Australian government support from the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs and the Department of Foreign Affairs, financial and cultural support, and indeed the Australian Ambassador opened the conference last night, and we have also had Irish government support, and we have the financial backing also of Heinz International through Dr A.J. O'Reilly and his Australian wife, Mrs Susan O'Reilly. They've been very generous. 
This must be um, something of a record to have a conference five years in advance of the, the main event you, you aim to be celebrating. Yes. Uh, is there a kind of developing swell already in Australia in academic circles uh, directed towards this, particularly, of course, speaking of the Irish orientation. Well, there is a, 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 a history of Australia being written for the bicentenary, but our great worry is that in the study of Australian history, which is a very recent origin, hitherto no distinction has been made between Irish, English, Scots and Welsh migration to Australia. It's all described simply as British settlement. And this British settlement is doesn't bring out anything distinctively Irish. Well, what's beginning to happen now in recent times is they say, yes, there is a distinctive Irish contribution in Australia, but no one has detailed it. So they know there's something there, and this conference is really to explore something that we know is there, but which has never been analysed before. Not surprisingly, the matter of family links with Ireland figured among the incidental topics. Colin Kieran. There's a growing interest now in what's called roots or ethnicity, in trying to, people trying to, more interested in tracing their background. Now that the Irish have become more established and successful in Australia, they begin to wonder where they came from and what county it really was, whether it was Kilkenny or Cork and so on. And they are educating their children to take up this interest. There's a, a growth, a proliferation of Irish step dancing in Australia, for example. Yeah. And the Irish clubs and societies are stronger now than they've ever been. Um, not just to, by Irish immigrants and so on, but by second and third generation Irish Australians who want to know more about Ireland, who are, who are sort of um, very r- sentimental and romantic about their Irish past. There's no, no longer is there a shame in it. There is yeah. now a pride in it. I asked the Australian ambassador, Sir Peter Lawler, about a remark in his speech at the opening of the conference that a number of members of the present Australian cabinet are of Irish extraction. Well, I think I need to make clear that when I spoke of the Irish links or connections in uh, members of the cabinet, one is talking about uh, some Irish blood in the veins. It may be uh, one grandparent, um, but... Um, there certainly has been in Australia an upward shift in in the um, in amongst those people who have uh, Irish origins in some degree. Uh, I suppose in part it's a, an expression of the increasing um, development of the country, uh, the improvements in standards of living, and that kind of thing. But. Uh, Yes, I think there has been, as the lecturer this morning was saying, uh, uh, an upward shift in the social status of uh, of people of Irish origin. Would you say this is due in part to the um, the big um, post-war immigration, which brought in a lot of other nationalities, so that the um, Irish identity became, if you like, less less prominent in, in that sense? Well, I think the Irish identity is still very prominent in Australia is I think the talk this morning brings out the way that uh, the Irish immigration to Australia differs from the uh, immigration in America Um, and um, the influx since the war of uh, people uh, from many countries into Australia is um, of course uh, something that affects the balance but I think the impact of it has yet to be seen in years ahead. It's a very recent phenomenon uh, since the war.
Is there a, a growing awareness of Ireland in, in, in Australia in general? Well, I believe there is in the months that I've been looking at this uh, since I knew that I was coming here as the ambassador. I've found a great deal of interest in Ireland. I've found uh, uh, people more uh, involved in tracing Irish origins. Uh, I've had people come to me and uh, speak about Irish ancestors and uh, about links with Ireland. And I've also found that there's now a, a movement back. The lecturer here this morning uh, is a, an Australian of Irish origin given back to Ireland. It would seem that not all writers about Irish emigrants to Australia looked kindly on them. David Fitzpatrick again. One hostile observer wrote, the Irish do not like going into the interior. They like to hold together like cattle, where they can squat down and gossip about all the ins and outs of the neighbourhood and have their priests and chapel in sight. An Irishman out here for 12 months knows more of the history of the people than an Englishman in seven years. In general, though, the Irish in Australia were well dispersed and seldom without non-Irish neighbours to gossip about. Uh, even within the cities, Irish ghettos never developed. As another witness pointed out, Melbourne is far too Irish as a whole to have any special Irish quarter. Overall, statistical analysis suggests that Irish settlers were neither the pioneers nor the marginal men of late 19th century Australia. Many of the Irish who went to Australia in the 19th century did not go, of course, of their own free will. They were transported as convicts or political prisoners. Lieutenant Colonel Con Costello has studied transportation and contributed a paper on the subject. He also made it the theme of one of RTE's Thomas Davis lectures, in which he observed of one large transport which sailed in February 1791. The vessel waiting at Cork was the Queen, engaged to carry 130 male and 22 female convicts at a cost of £17 per head plus the provision of food for the voyage and their maintenance for one year in the colony. The naval agent at Cork gave a receipt for the prisoners to the mayor and to the sheriff of the city of Cork. The latter was Henry Brown Hayes, who himself was destined to be transported within a few years. The indent list for this vessel did not reach Sydney until eight years after the arrival of the convicts, thus setting a patron for the documentation of Irish prisoners which was to be the subject of much adverse comment during the years that transportation lasted. Before the end of the 18th century, four more ships from Ireland joined the convict fleet to Sydney. A total of 860 convicts were transported, including 207 females. It has been estimated that of these, 265 were agrarian offenders, that is, defenders, white boys, right boys, or such other activists in that category. Some 37,432 convicts were transported to the colonies in New South Wales, Van Diemen's Land and Western Australia from Ireland. In 212 ships during the 77 years that the system lasted, that is from 1791 to 1868. Of this total, 8,419 were women and 28,022 were men. 991 died or escaped en route to the colony. Of these, as of the English convicts, it has been found a very large proportion were neither hardened nor vicious nor even criminals. The great majority of the English convicts were from urban areas, which were the centres of crime in the 19th century. 
The main cause of conflict in Ireland was agrarian, and, as has been seen, 44% of the convicts from rural Ireland had no previous offence and were convicted of petty crimes, generally theft. 65% of these had an almost perfect record in the colony. But naturally there were some exceptions. In Australian folk culture, the Irish convicts feature as heroes, the fearless, daring men who are with the law and support the underdog. Jack Donoghue, the wild colonial boy, is depicted in popular ballads as a 19th century Robin Hood, while Ned Kelly, because of his notorious escapades, including the gunning down of three policemen, is a particular favourite. Whatever about Ned Kelly, Dr Seamus Grimes of University College Galway brought the attention of the conference firmly to the present century. By 1971, the Irish-born component of Australia's population had fallen to a mere 2%. He spoke specifically of Sydney. Between 1947 and 1954, almost twice as many males as females came to Australia. There were few children among the immigrants, and there was a heavy preponderance of those over 60 years of age. Rose also noted that 32% of migrants from the Irish Republic were in building and transport, compared with only 19% of the Australian workforce. By the 1970s, those characteristics of Irish immigrants had changed little. The majority of immigrants were between 20 and 40, but the proportion of males had declined considerably since the 1950s. Occupationally, the picture had not changed, with more than half of the Irish males in the category of tradesmen, process workers or labourers, compared with only 38% of the Australian males. The Irish female migrant population, however, seems to have been in a superior position occupationally to that of the host population, with 18% of the Irish in the professional, technical and related categories, compared with 14% of Australians. Turning to socio-economic conditions, Dr Grimes reviewed membership of a popular Irish club in Sydney. The Gaelic club, which is located in Surrey Hills, close to the Central Railway Station, had a membership of 1,530 members in 1975, of whom 30% were Irish-Australian. This club, therefore, represented just under 10% of the immigrant population, most of whom lived within easy access of the club. Three areas of residential concentration of club members were evident, the eastern suburbs, the inner city, and the midwestern suburbs. The sex ratio of club members in the eastern suburbs was more evenly balanced than elsewhere, while the occupational composition was more broadly based than in either of the two other clusters. Club members in the eastern suburbs were mainly the young, single or recently married components of the immigrant population who were involved in service occupations such as offices and hospitals. The inner city area had a predominantly male membership and consisted of a mixture of young transients and older unmarried males. Surrey Hills, which was the location of the club, was one of the traditional strongholds of the Irish community earlier in the century. Its central location and possibly its cheap accommodation continued to attract some immigrants despite the westward shift in the immigrant population in the 1960s. About 32% of the club membership was resident in the Midwestern suburbs. 
This was not surprising, considering the importance of the Burward area, in particular, for those immigrants involved in construction work. The Midwestern suburbs had a high density of population inhabiting the home unit blocks located close to the two main railway lines. Information from the membership files indicated a definite pattern of flat sharing by club members in this area. It also revealed a remarkable concentration of labourers, semi-skilled workers and tradesmen. Grouping the occupations of club members into status-like categories, however, conceals the fact that many of these Irish immigrants were involved in particular lines of work. The commonly mentioned occupations were plant operator, drainer and pipe layer, indicating the near monopoly of Irish subcontractors in the underground cable laying business in Sydney. In discussing settlement in different areas of the city, Dr Grimes commented, It was in the Midwest also that the biggest Irish contractor, implying about 200 Irishmen, was located. The work was subcontracted to fellow countrymen, who in turn implied all Irish gangs. Many of the features associated with this migrant work environment in England had also been transplanted to Sydney. It involved heavy labour, but in a familiar and homely environment. To a large extent, it remained outside the official bureaucratic system, being non-unionised and casual in organisation. Poor administration could result in tax avoidance, but also in defective insurance cover for workers. There was generally little commitment between employer and employee, with rumours of better opportunities elsewhere resulting in a high labour turnover. An almost identical employment background is described by O'Connor in the case of Irish immigrants in England and by Sykes for Scotland. This type of work environment resulted in a very unsettled lifestyle for many, with immigrants spending alternate periods in the city and the bush as opportunities arose. In the recent period of rising unemployment, the ethnic contact networks played an important role in restricting opportunities to fellow countrymen. Upon returning from periods out of town, the familiar nodes of contact provided a homely welcome in a rather anonymous urban environment. Unlike the urban immigrants, the rural Irish spent the greater part of their social life in all-male drinking groups based on the Midwestern hotels. Many of the rural Irish were members of the city-based Irish club, and this further immersed them into an ethnic Irish world. Unlike the urban migrants, the rural Irish formed the mainstay of the Gaelic Athletic Association activities in the city. Thus, their interests lay with Gaelic football and hurling rather than with soccer. Between their all-Irish work environment, together with the variety of social activities in which they became involved, it is clear how their highly interconnected patterns of social networks had evolved. There is considerable evidence, therefore, to suggest that many Irish persons do become part of close-knit networks, either of the ethnic community, which is predominantly rural in background, or of the predominantly Irish friendship networks composed of urban migrants. Most of them, however, after the initial period of adaptation, become part of the wider cosmopolitan society. One of the vehicles which brings about this significant change in the friendship patterns is the socio-spatial structure of the urban environment. Initially, immigrants find themselves in the more transient parts of the city, such as the Midwestern suburbs, as renters of flats or home units. 
and frequently become involved in the ethnic work network. During this initial period, their friendships are predominantly Irish, and their social life is usually centred on the main ethnic nodes of interaction. This initial period is characterised by fewer family commitments, and thus this little, uh, little constraint on the use of discretionary time. Residential dispersion, however, usually accompanies movement into the later stages of the life cycle. And with marriage and family development, friendship patterns become more family-centred and based on the neighbourhood. Their shared religious background with the Irish-Australian component of the population allows for greater integration through school and parish activities. With the passage of time, therefore, while their most intimate friends may still be Irish, frequency of contact with them is likely to be reduced to such annual events as St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Do the Irish in Australia differ from other immigrant groups? I think one of the the major differences, of course, is the fact that um, the Irish speak a form of English. Um, So they are very much in in contrast with with, uh, many Southern Europeans, for example, you know, with the the Southern huge populations of Southern Europeans. And there are other major differences. I think that one of the main ones is the fact that I, I mentioned the fact that the Irish keep a low profile. Uh, I would say that many people would argue with the interpretation that I have given of the situation in Sydney. And I would suggest that one of the reasons they would argue with it is because it is so hidden. Uh, the Irish do, don't, um, they don't wear their Irishness on their sleeves, as it were. They don't go around promoting it. But at the same time, there are understandings there. And it's a sort of a strange situation whereby um, there is a paradox, I suppose, within each, every nationality. But the Irish uh, don't necessarily want to, to create strong links between individuals. At the same time, they will come back maybe after a number of years having disappeared and will want to return to a familiar situation, even though there is very little commitment in that situation. So there's a sort of a paradox of secrecy and independence on the one hand and of shared familiarity on the other hand. The literary background was discussed by a professor of the University of Melbourne, Vincent Buckley, one of Australia's leading poets. He spoke to us about his paper against a rather distracting background of a filling auditorium. It's really about the presence of Irish characters in Australian novels. Uh, quite a lot of novelists have got uh, Irish, are of Irish descent, but... Uh, I'm interested in in the question how Australian novelists, whether they're of Irish descent themselves or or not, uh, view Irish characters. And uh, I've looked at five uh, novelists, um, the chief ones of whom are Patrick White with The Tree of Man, uh, Xavier Herbert with Capricornia, uh, and um, Darcy Nyland with uh, Dead Men uh, Running. And uh, I've found that... uh, I've been rather surprised at what, what I've found by looking at that small sample. Uh, I find that whether they're of Irish descent or not, the novelists tend to perceive Irish characters as individuals, that is, not parts of closely knit communities, but as individuals, uh, as extremist or absolutist in personality, uh, not particularly combative, uh, but nevertheless easily alienated. And um, this applies also to uh, Joseph Furphy's Such is Life. The most interesting case of the lot, by the way, is Patrick White's treatment of the O'Dowds in The Tree of Man, where I was surprised to find how much sympathy he has for, for the O'Dowds. 
These are all contemporary novelists, of course. Uh, um, yeah, well, except in Furphy, yes, yes. Yeah. But do you trace any um, any sort of historical roots in the handling of Irish characters and people like Henry Henry Richardson or anybody like that, uh, going further back? Uh, no. Uh, mm. Henry Handel Richardson I left alone because yeah. that's going to be treated by somebody yeah. else at this conference. Uh, also, the, the, the problem with that with that book is that the characterization is, raises such complex questions that I couldn't handle it under this thematic heading. Uh, but I'm quite sure that if I'm right about this, it has historical roots and historians would easily be able to trace where they, they come from. That is, I think that the roots of that uh, habit of perception are not just in literature but in, 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 uh, in history and in politics. In an overview of the main theme of this wide-ranging conference, Professor Oliver McDonough of the Australian National University in Canberra compared emigration to Australia with that to America. Irish emigration to Australia was mainly, not overwhelmingly, but mainly financed wholly or partly from public funds, whereas the proportion of Irish emigration to the United States, which was not paid for by the emigrants' families or connections or by the emigrants themselves, was, even when we allow for landlord and poor law clearances, quite minute. This does not mean that the Irish emigrants to Australia were of a lower social class or more impoverished than their American counterparts. Far from it, I think. It seems to me likely, of course, that matter still needs much more investigation, that relatively speaking, Australia attracted a considerably higher proportion of Irish middle-class emigrants than the United States, partly for reasons of timing, partly because of the identical professional structures which made transference so easy, and partly, in the case of Irish Protestants particularly, because of the continuing British connection. Let us remember, too, that the cost of self-paid passages to Australia was four or five times higher than that of the Atlantic crossing. And although most Irish emigrants to Australia were more or less state-assisted, a very considerable minority were self-financed. But the most important point of all this, to me, is that state assistance, with its stress upon certified respectability and stable employment backgrounds, tended generally to favour what we might call the petty bourgeois or the upper working class, rather than the proletariat of the Irish countryside. True, specific bodies of Irish-assisted immigrants were destitute. Orphan girls, convicts dependents, crown tenants, and Anglo-Saxon Australia regarded these as, at the very best, a pisale. But if we place over the Irish emigrants to Australia en masse, the complex grid of Irish social gradations, we would, I think, find that the great majority were drawn from, say, the third, fourth, and fifth, rather than the sixth or seventh rankings in the scale. Moreover, the very fact of state management increased the likelihood of their arriving with some little capital, however small, as well as some small measure of assistance to disperse and of guidance towards immediate employment. In all of these respects, their circumstances upon disembarkation contrasted sharply with uh, tens and even hundreds of the compatriots in, say, Boston and New York, particularly in the decade and a half 1845 to 60. Of immigration to the host countries, Professor McDonough remarked, The Australian pattern was broadly different. 
There were, of course, very considerable variations in the relative density of Irish settlement from place to place. Two colonies were always below the average for the continent. In South Australia, much the most Anglophilic of the colonies, the Irish constituted only some 17 to 18% of the total population. The Tasmanian proportion was even lower at about 15%. Tasmania was primarily, at any rate originally, a convict settlement, and possibly because of the hazy geography of the Chief Secretary's office in Dublin, no Irish convicts were sent there before 1836. There were also significant regional differences within particular colonies. In New South Wales, the Irish settled more heavily south rather than north of Sydney. In Queensland, they were proportionately numerous disproportionately numerous in the rural as against the metropolitan districts. On a smaller scale, the differences might be more dramatic. The Irish were very populous in the Clare region of South Australia, but scarcely to be found at all in nearby Sepplesfield. Very numerous about Crookwell in New South Wales, but scarcely to be found at all about Moss Vale, merely 50 miles or so away. But we must try to see all this in perspective, And perhaps this can best be done by examining the demography of Victoria, whose census statistics permit the vital correlations of religion and place of origin, uh, these to be made uh, throughout the years 1851 to 1914. Now, these returns give us many measurements on different scales for both constant areas of settlement and ever-varying densities of population. A clear general pattern seems to emerge as follows. A minimum Irish proportion of 15 and a maximum Irish proportion of 35% in almost every place and region in Victoria and at almost every point in uh, time in the period. A very large number of cases are clustered around 23%. This might serve as a sort of paradigm, I think, for Australia as a whole between the onset of white settlement and the outbreak of the First World War. It seems likely. Uh, We, or at any rate, I do not yet have sufficient data to to be certain, but it seems likely that no other colony had the Irish so evenly distributed as Victoria. Nonetheless, the 15 to 35% bracket must be, broadly speaking, applicable to Australia as a whole, provided that we divide its population as against its land area into largest units. This is startlingly dissimilar to the patterns in either the United States or Britain. There, a comparatively few specific concentrations account for the vast majority of the immigrations. There, perhaps as much perhaps as 90% of an overwhelmingly rural emigration ended up in the hearts of cities. The key, it seems to me, is that the Irish were a founding people in Australia and maintained their position in the new society more or less for almost half a century. (coughs) Whether as convicts, as jailers or jailers, as common soldiers or petty officials, as administrators, as lawyers, as labourers or as adventurers, the Irish formed a substantial element of the Australian immigration. All was somewhere between 20 and 30% of the whole from the very beginnings of white settlement. Despite various temporary accelerations and decelerations in the volume, the proportion of 20 to 30 percent was maintained throughout almost the entire 19th century and in 
phases even into the 20th. These two factors, full participation in the very earliest developments of a new country, white country, and the maintenance for so long of this participation upon a very considerable scale, rendered Australia unique in Irish terms. (coughs) 